0: Let's pray, Father. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our Rock and our Redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I assume everyone here is sick of the political turmoil. I assume everyone here is at some level concerned about the threat being presented by North Korea. I assume everyone here is sickened by the inhuman actions of ISIS against innocent civilians throughout the East. I assume everyone here has many other concerns weighing upon them than these few that I have just mentioned. Well, I've got good news for you. One day, the political turmoil will cease, and we will experience a deep and abiding peace not only this not only within our own government but between all nations of the earth. One day, North Korea will give up its warmongering threats and beat their swords into plowshares. One day, ISIS will be no more and people throughout the Mideast will obey God's commandments to love one's neighbor as they love themselves. One day, all our burdens and all our weighty concerns will be lifted off our shoulders. And we will bear them no more because God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. That is good news. Just think about it and let it sink in. No more fake news stories to stir up our nation. No more ill-advised tweets that taunt political enemies. No more saber-rattling threats of nuclear warfare. No more terrorists. No more grisly beheadings. No more persecution of Christians. No more suffering. No more trials. No more temptations. No more tears No more sin. No more death. Everything that is bad or evil will be no more. As wonderful as all that is, that's only half the story. We will not just experience the absence of bad or evil. Rather, we will experience perfect goodness, perfect virtue, we will be in God's direct presence and His glory. Everything that is broken, everything that is hateful, everything that is wrong in this world will be reversed. We have two little stories here at the end of 2 Kings chapter 4 that Houston just read for us. And these two little stories give us a preview of this great reversal to come. These two little stories share a common theme. They take place at mealtime, but in each instance, the meal is in danger of being ruined. And in each instance, God worked a miracle to save the mealtime celebration. Uh, For time's sake, we're only going to look at the first of these meals. So let's dive right in to verses 38 through 41. In verse 38, Elisha traveled to Gilgal to visit the little community of prophets who were living in seclusion on the west bank of the Jordan River. They were living in seclusion because the whole rest of Israel was essentially apostate. It was dangerous to be a prophet of God and to bring God's word to God's people. Israel's rebellion was so great that before the prophet Elijah was taken up to heaven, he had to go into hiding on the east side of the Jordan River for about three years to escape the king of Israel. And then after that, after he came out of hiding for a little bit, he had to go hide in a cave to escape the queen of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament. When the Israelites' rebellion against God became especially wicked, especially pronounced, what God would typically do would send He would send a famine in to bring the people to repentance. In fact, that's one of the covenant promises. If you rebel against me, I will send a famine into your land, God told the Israelites. So I strongly suspect that this is the reason for the famine here in verse 38. Israel has been wicked. And these prophets who represent the faithful remnant within Israel, they were not exempt from this famine. They were not exempt from the hardships of this famine. They suffered the effects of the nation's apostasy. And I think there's a lesson here for us to learn. As our nation continues to become more and more immoral, the leaven of immorality affects the whole culture. The conditions of immorality affect everywhere we live, everywhere that we work, everywhere that we go to play. We have to live in a culture that attempts to make truth Optional. I say, good luck with that. We also live in a culture where we have to raise our children in a culture that tries to shame our children into rejecting biblical ethics and rejecting a biblical worldview in favor of a thoroughgoing secularism. So, we cannot afford to turn our backs on culture and let it go to pot because it's only going to get worse. And as it gets worse, the greater its effects on us, the greater its effects on our families. We talked a little bit about what the future might look like uh, in Sunday school as our freedoms uh, begin to erode and Um, people think that they can and should bind the conscience of Christians. So we cannot as Christians afford to be a holy huddle ignoring the wickedness around us. We must enter into our culture as warriors, warriors for Christ with the weapons of the Gospel. And what are we called to do? Second Corinthians 10 says, we are called to destroy arguments. And we are called to destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive for obedience to Christ. We can't be passive. We can't close our eyes. We can't turn our back. We can't just stay here within the confines of the church. God calls us to go out and do spiritual battle not with carnal weapons, but with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the times were tough for the community of the prophets, Elijah traveled down to Gilgal, and as he arrived there, he thought it might be nice to prepare a large pot of stew for the 100 or so prophets that were living there. Elisha, as you will see in the text, he directed Gehazi, his servant, to uh, prepare this stew. But one of the prophets became quite excited that their master, Elisha, has come into town and now he's going to feed them. One of the prophets got so excited that he ran out to the surrounding fields and was going to gather some, some herbs to uh, put into the pot to give it a little spice. But he also saw, saw some wild gourds that looked tasty. He gathered those, cut them up, and put those in the pot as well. Unfortunately, the gourds were poisonous. Every cook's nightmare came true. The people began crying out, There's death in the pot! The whole meal was ruined. Well, a ruined meal is not easily forgotten, especially if someone almost dies from the food. If you've ever gotten poison, or food poisoning from a restaurant, you're probably not likely to go visit that restaurant anytime soon. And you probably remember quite well, unfortunately, the after effects. I was about 10 years old when my mom attempted her now infamous Great Loaf. It was supposed to be meatloaf. Um, no amount of ketchup could make it edible. Um, in fact, I remember we, we, um, we gave the, the great loaf to the, the German shepherds outside and, and they turned their nose up and refused to eat it. And if I had time to tell you, I'd tell you about the time that she tried to serve sun-brewed tea at our Thanksgiving meal. And the sun tea has gone down in Holland family lore. None of us in our family and extended family have, have forgotten that day. The sun didn't quite brew the tea as it was supposed to. Elisha would not let this meal be ruined rather what he he saw an opportunity to teach the prophets about God's glory and about God's delight to reverse the most desperate of circumstances now we should not take away from this passage that God will step in and rescue us from any of our culinary disasters i am happy to report that mandy has never had occasion to be rescued her meals have always been Just right. And if they weren't, I'm smart enough not to tell you. (laughs) So then what should we take away from this passage? Elisha, by reversing the poison in the stew to make it edible, is giving a prophetic sign that God is going to bring about a final reversal of the curse that occurred in the Garden of Eden. The greatest effect of the curse is the spiritual death that came upon all mankind. You know, if you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you read Genesis 1, uh, God made light, it was good. God made the animals, it was good. God made man and it was very good. That was the last time that God said that man was good in and of himself. Because in chapter 3, with the fall, man sinned against God and he was cursed. He became depraved. Spiritual death came upon all mankind. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. See, God had said to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. On that day that Adam ate from the fruit of the tree. He died. Not physically. He died spiritually. And as a result, well, there were several results. First of all, his relationship with God was broken. Secondly, his firstborn son inherited his spiritually dead nature and murdered his secondborn son out of jealousy and spite. The curse was not only received by His firstborn son, but, but but by all of mankind who followed after Him. So we uh, see that mankind very quickly, very immediately began to reject God, began to reject what is good, began to be hateful to his fellow man, so that Cain's great-great-grandson is recorded as boasting in Genesis chapter 4, I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain is revenge sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. God did save some individuals, even some families during that time period. But mankind was so wicked that they spiraled downward very quickly. So that finally we read in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man on earth was great and that every inclination of the faults of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. Why has there been so much wickedness, so much bloodshed throughout human history? It's because... Mankind is cursed ever since Adam fell. Even God's own chosen people, the nation of Israel, could not bring themselves to worship God, but rather chased after other gods that were merely inventions of the human mind. Consistently, Israel rejected God in favor of perversions and in favor of depravity The whole history of Israel, in fact, is intended to teach us that humanity is fallen and is in desperate need of God's grace. And the New Testament gives witness to this as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked when Adam sinned and the curse came upon mankind and came upon all of human history, we all became by nature children of wrath. Really, being born into this world does not place you in relationship with God. We were born in this world as a spiritually dead person. None of us has been exempted. The only one exempted was the Lord Jesus Christ. But He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was not a descendant of Adam in the strict sense of the term. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It is so easy for us to overestimate who we are. It's so easy for us to overestimate our goodness. It's so easy for us to underestimate our depravity. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Why is it our natural... Reflex to reject God, to favor ourselves, because by nature we were born into this world as children of wrath. If you are not a Christian, you continue to be by nature a children, a child of wrath, and you will continue to be unless God makes you alive with Christ. Salvation is not about making a simple decision. Rather, it is a supernatural miracle of God's grace that He works in our soul. This is what we call the new birth or what we call regeneration. This is the Bible's consistent testimony about us as fallen, as um, spiritually dead, as... Depraved as um, cursed people in Adam. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of God and loving, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are only a believer because of God's mercy. If you are no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God, it is only because of God's mercy. And when God saves us, He changes us. Our salvation in Christ is the personal, individual reversal of the curse. Our salvation in Christ is is where the image of God is restored to us. Our entire nature is changed. Our entire nature is reversed. Whereas we were children of wrath, Now, by nature, we are children of God. Our whole orientation to life has been reversed. As children of God, we are agents of God's righteousness here on earth. As we live for Christ, raise our families for Christ, and tell others about Christ, we are claiming ground for the kingdom of Christ. There is no other human agent. There is no societal movement Uh, out in our culture that will bring about righteousness, bring about goodness other than we as Christians living our faith out in the world. When the curse is reversed, when we now are children of God, when we now have the image of God restored in us, What's happening is true humanity is being restored in us, and we begin living. We begin living according to the way we are intended to live. When we pursue holiness, when we pursue godliness, when we pursue obedience to God's commands, and we become more human in the way we live, and we also become more happy, because happiness is always a byproduct of holiness. Even when we are suffering, as the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we have been made right. We have been made new. The the curse in our life has been reversed. Now, we're still living between the times. We still struggle with the leftover effects of our previous nature. But all that is left of our previous nature is a dead carcass that we carry along behind us. One day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, all will be made perfect in goodness and in virtue. All of us who are in Jesus Christ will no longer have to worry about sin, have to worry about temptation, have to worry about burdens and cares, because God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the symbolism here in this uh, miracle that, um, that we see here in the, uh, the death in the pot being reversed into a, a feast uh, fit for these 100 prophets. That's also the picture of the wedding feast when Jesus turned the water into wine. He is the Savior who transforms. He is the One who takes us poor sinners who are children of wrath and transforms us completely into children of the living God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we look to You this morning and we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a... Foreshadowing, this this miracle is just a foreshadowing of the great transformation that Jesus Christ is going to bring about by His substitutionary death and by His glorious resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven. And Lord, because we have been transformed, we long with great anticipation and joy the return of our Lord Jesus Christ where He will make all things um, right and true and perfect. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we ask. In Your name, Amen.